Open with me to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8 today and go down through 15. Again, that's Colossians chapter 2. Oh, kids are dismissed, by the way. And you can sit down, so anyway. <laughs> Usually I see Paul back there doing jumping jacks to remind me, but he wasn't back there today. Anyway, again, we're starting in Colossians chapter 2 in verse 8, starting in verse 8 going all the way down to verse 15. I might point out that last time we were in here, Samuel had only two verses. Today, I have seven to work through. So anyway, it's not fair. But anyway, I'm going to do that. So anyway. I titled this, Our Great Victory in Christ. I know it sounds kind of like a cliche, I guess, a Christian cliche, I suppose. But as we go through this passage, it, it, it does make sense. I mean, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nothing. We, we are undeserving of our salvation. And this is just a small little segment that reminds us of that. It's in him that we are saved. And so we'll see this in him pop up many times as we go through this passage. Please follow along as I read Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and the rule of all authority. In him also you were circumcised with an uncircumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, as we look at the book of Colossians, it's, uh, as I was actually checking this out, it, scholars have found it very difficult to figure out exactly what the, the Colossian heresy was. And Paul doesn't really go into detail about it. He doesn't have to, because that's not the problem. The problem is correcting what's going to happen here. And he really doesn't waste any time going over and over what was going wrong, but he really, really wants to spend time in what is right. And it's Christ, sufficiency of Christ. And so that is the book of Colossians. And personally, we can learn a lot about that, especially me. When I'm out there sharing the gospel with other people, I don't have to really, you know, I don't really have to know about their religion that much. And, uh, you know, maybe some vague things about it so I can kind of counter it, but it really comes down to the fact that here's what the truth is. 
And I need to present the truth to them when I give them the truth. I don't really need all the facts of their heresy that they're living in. They're lost. They need to hear truth. And so that's where we need to spend the time, as Paul does as we go in the book of Colossians. We also see this this letter as a warning to the Colossians, too. It seems as if... uh, The heresy hasn't really taken over the church at this point, so it's more of a warning. So the letter is a great letter for not only them, but obviously it's very relevant today too. Very relevant, as the whole Bible is, but especially this as we go through it. And to think about our own church, how heresy could leak in here, and how we need to be on guard at all times to make sure that doesn't happen. Start out in verse 8 here. You have everything in Christ. In verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Philosophies of the world are very dangerous and deceptive. They can take a person captive and lead them away from the real truth. They'll mix it with uh, their, their philosophy with some doctrine and make it look like truth and people are deceived by that as believers we don't have to succumb to this because christ in christ we are complete we have everything we need in christ false teaching today we see this we see just a couple examples of that is legalism and it's usually this it's jesus plus baptism Okay, and baptism is a command, we need to do it, but they're telling us that salvation is Jesus plus baptism, or it's Jesus plus tithing, or it's Jesus plus observing the Sabbath on Saturday. Some churches do that out there. It's Jesus plus dietary restrictions. It's Jesus plus something to be saved. But obviously, as we go through the book of Colossians, it reminds us that, no, Christ is sufficient in everything that we need. Remember in Romans 3, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 reminds us that for, is for by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God. It's a gift. Our salvation is a gift. And we're completely reminded of that as we go through God's word. There's another false, there's tons of false teachings out there today, but I just hit on a couple. There's another one called the gospel of permissive grace. And this is telling people that God loves you unconditionally. God loves you just as you are. This unconditional love, no matter what one's lifestyle is a fallacy. God hates sin. We need to remember that. We cannot be disobedient to God. He's a God of justice too. He will not let sin go away. And we definitely love people and we want them to know Christ as their Savior, but we don't want to send them down the wrong road, give them the wrong thought on who God is. And so again, this false teaching just leaks into churches and can overrun churches too. And there's many, many more out there, but we need to beware. 
And when we look in a few passages like 2 Peter 3, 17 through 18, it says, You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Matthew 7.15 says this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly a, are ravenous wolves. 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us of this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we need to be always on guard. We need to watch out for false teaching. And we need to even be aware ourselves as we teach that we teach accurately the Word of God. And we need to be bold and go up and humbly suggest when somebody is teaching something wrong to point it out. Because sometimes I even know in my own case that that can accidentally happen. And definitely uh, we need to straighten that out. And, 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 and again, it's through humility that you come to somebody and, and point that out to them. But you know, it's, uh, we all make mistakes, but then again, as Christians, as those that are in Christ, we don't find offense to that. We, we understand and, and correct ourselves, too, and, and pray for forgiveness in that as well. So always point that out when you can. Again, with humility and love, you can do that. We go on into verse 9, and it says, For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus comes to us. He is fully man, but he is also fully God. If we look back into Colossians 1.19, it says this, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Was pleased to dwell. So again, Christ is fully man and fully God. We go down into verse 10, and it says this. It says, and you have been filled in him. Jesus, fully man, fully God, we are filled with Jesus. You are complete in Jesus. Colossians 1.22 says this. He is now reconciled. If we go back to Colossians 1.22, he says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. When you look at that, you, look, you, you can see this, you've been filled in him so he can present you as holy, made sinless, set apart to God. You've been filled in him so he can present you as blameless, without blemish, made perfect, You've been filled in him so he can present you as being above approach. No accusation can be made against us. God won't allow it. So again, we have been filled with in him. We are complete in Christ, in him. Verse 10 continues on and it says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. If we go back to Colossians 
1.16, it reminds us that Christ is preeminent. Christ is first and foremost. Colossians 1.16 goes on to say this, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You have everything you need in Christ. Look at verses 11 and 12, and it reminds us that our sins are removed in Christ. Again, our sins are removed in Christ. Verse 11 says this, it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision was a symbolic requirement for the Jew regarding the need to cut away sins and be cleansed. This was the old covenant. This was this covenant was fulfilled when Christ died on the cross for our sins. Romans 10:4 reminds us of this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this this circumcision would be done to remove flesh, to remove, it'd be symbolic of removing sin and, and cleansing you from this sin. And Jews knew this, but also Jews had uh, also used this for kind of an identity purpose as well, for being Jewish too. And it kind of loses its, its meaning. But we see at salvation that this, this uh, circumcision of Christ is a spiritual circumcision. The circumcision goes after the flesh of man at this point. This is a surgery of the heart, a circumcision of the heart. Flesh, in definition, as we look at it in this case, it is a natural tendency or desire to sin. We are born in flesh. We are born as sinners. Our sin nature, our total depravity, rules us. Even after we're saved, we still struggle with flesh. Okay, We need to be reminded of this. And because of this flesh, we cannot stand before God who is holy. We need this type of flesh removed and it can only be removed by the heart and it can only be done by Christ Christ does the change in our hearts and we were reminded of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 8, uh, 19 through 21 now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensual sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I've warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these are the deeds of the flesh. These are the struggles people run into. This is where Christ does his work on us. This flesh must be removed. This is the circumcision of Christ. 
This is a spiritual circumcision of your heart. This is the change that Christ makes in you because you are in him. Verse 12 goes on and it says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Baptism is symbolic in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 28, 19, it is a command. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a command, but again, if we look at legalism, as I talked about before, it's not a requirement for salvation. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. It is a command, though, to do. And I can get a little fuzzy thinking through it that way, but Christ has commanded us to do this. So to not do this would be sinful. However, if we look back on the cross, we see this criminal, and he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, you'll be with me in paradise. This criminal didn't have time to get off the cross and get baptized. The criminal didn't have time to run down and do a Bible study. This shows us how works related to what we believe have nothing to do with anything, that, uh, with our salvation. That's Christ that saves us. So again, baptism, it's symbolic for one thing. It doesn't save us, but it's symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, it's the famous chapter that talks a lot about baptism. I'll go through a little bit of it, though, and it just kind of reminds us of what this baptism is for, okay? And again, symbolic. What shall we say now? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So can we keep on sinning and keep on relying on that gift of grace? (laughs) Goes on in two, it says, by no means we can do that. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that those of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We have a new life in Christ. We've done this symbolic thing that is a testimony to other people through our baptism. It's an internal change, and we're showing an outward obedience to God and a testimony to others through our baptism. And five, it goes on and says, For if we have been united with him in death like this, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old selves were crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might, not, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone, who's die, who, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We've been set free from sin already. 
We are reminded of that through our baptism. And again, it's symbolic of our salvation. We are brought to life in Christ, and we're looking at verses 13 through 15. And this is, reminds us that our, our sinful death, our sinful life is leading us to death, death eternal. However, we are brought to life in Christ. In 13, we see this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Again, this flesh has not been removed from your heart. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's kind of an IOU, these legal demands. We have a great sin. We have a great debt that is impossible to pay off. No amount of good works that we do, no amount of obedience following God's word will save us. No amount of money could save us. Nothing can even scratch the surface on the debt that we owe our Lord and Savior. However, it's interesting as we look at this, it, says, it goes on, it says this, he set aside nailing it to the cross. These sins are nailed to the cross. When we look at, we know this, when we look back at the cross, we see that there was a a a charge that would be nailed on this cross above a criminal's head. We know that Jesus said his was the king of the Jews. But others, their charges would be nailed on there. And I think of the charges of my own personal sin and how tall that cross would have to be to accommodate all my sins. And the fact that Christ would take those sins and nail them to the cross, my own, yours, everybody in the world that comes to faith in him, it's just hard to fathom. Yet he would do that. But I'm in Christ, and this satisfies the wrath of God for me. I'm so grateful for that. 15, it goes on, it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. This would be the devil and the demonic realm, Satan himself, by triumphing over them in him. Again, back in him. Jesus conquers death on the cross for us. Jesus is sufficient for our salvation. It's in him and him alone that we have eternal life. It's in him and him alone that we have victory over our sin and eternal judgment. Christ is sufficient in everything. I'm so grateful for that. Again, we have everything in Christ. Our sins are removed in Christ. And you are brought to life in Christ. We have a great victory in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do just thank you, Lord, that everything we have is in you, Lord, that you are sufficient for all the things we need in life, Lord. You are sufficient for just all the 
sin that we have done against you, Lord, yet you would save us from those sins. May we be reminded of that. May we be aware, Lord, that aware that uh, false teaching can come into our church at any time. And, and Lord, uh, we would be on guard against that. And we'd be bold to come up and speak to people about that, about any wrong teaching or wrongdoing, Lord, and humbly and lovingly correct them, Lord. And may they take that correction seriously, Lord. May we be a church that would glorify and honor you and show our thanksgiving to you for what you've done for us, Lord. I just praise you and thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.